Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by cinematographer Barton Courtright to talk about his Sundance film, The Cathedral. The film stars Brian Darcy James and follows an only child's meditative and impressionistic account of an American family's rise and fall over two decades. It was Bart's job to work with the film's director, Ricky D'Ambrose, to create a dark film with natural light to highlight the melancholy feel of the film, part semi-autobiographical portrait and part catalog of objects, people, and moments that characterize some 20 years of America. The film is about growing up on Long Island and family dysfunction. Due to the nature of the film, the majority of it was shot inside a home, making lighting vital to the storytelling. Bart was very selective with the lighting choices as he wanted to make the film look as unlit and natural as possible. As such, he worked closely with his gaffer to ensure all the light came through lighting sources from outside. Every scene felt like it was lit from natural light coming through the window. The Cathedral premieres at Sundance on January 22nd, and you can see Bart's work, upcoming projects, Evening Song, and Grove. Hope you enjoy the show. So, Bart, I'm really excited to talk to you about the film. I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it was the way that the visuals are used in this film to um, kind of show and explore how unreliable to me memory is and how one-sided and sort of this idea of memory that is completely from a point of view and it never tells the complete story, just a version of that. And is that something that you were going for with this film? Cause that's definitely how I took this. Ricky, the film is definitely, you know, fragments of glimpses of Ricky's life. Um, it was funny, you know, he had a lot of 35 millimeter photos um, from his childhood that we would recreate almost like to a T in the film. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not one to speak to memory, but it is always funny that thing of like, you know, when there's photographs of your childhood, you're always like, am I remembering, you know, how am I remembering it? And uh, or am I remembering it exactly? Or am I remembering like the photo or, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't speak to exactly what Ricky meant to, you know, convey with it, but I think he liked just showing it as like glimpses and, 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 and he's described the film as having like a ghost or haunted like quality. Um, yeah. And well, it definitely feels that way. It does feel it has that um, haunted or disconnected to some degree where it doesn't that's I guess that's the lack of reliability where it doesn't feel completely grounded in this reality. In that sense, even though it feels utterly relatable in that way, because it does feel like you're saying looking through those old pictures that I have of birthday parties from years ago. And because these are all these disposable 35 millimeter you know, cameras and stuff like that that we had at the time are my memories just shaded that way because of this particular type of photography or where it was the seventies. So there was just a lot more earth tones in the world. It's it's somewhere in between the two of those probably. Um, And it's just a really interesting way of telling a story like this. It doesn't, I I noticed that it was referred to as experimental, but it feels like um, actually just very, almost like a neo-realistic film in that sense. If that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think people like to define it as experimental just by the kind of sparse, like visual language that, you know, Ricky has developed over the years. Um, but yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, I when I was trying to write about the film, I always, you know, realism was something that always, you know, popped up in my head for sure. And the lighting of the film, it's you're using almost all 
natural source lighting. Is that correct? Or is that just the illusion that you're going for? Yeah, that was definitely the illusion. Um, in Ricky's previous film, he had done kind of a more, you know, a bit of a flatter look, but, mm -hmm. you know, he really wanted a more naturalistic look. I was really excited. He brought like a bunch of references, some of which were these 35 millimeter family photos, but a lot of his references just had a lot more shadow and uh, felt a lot more naturally lit. So that was what I did my best to do. I mean, I would say probably 80% of the film I lit. Um, and maybe 20% of it was natural, but I was always trying to make it not look lit, not add hair lights, not, you know, not make it like too polished. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of the goal And I was, yeah, it was, it was fun to do. Yeah. And the film is not a showy film in a visual sense. It's very restrained. And that's something that almost, um, gives it a claustrophobic feeling at times. And it's everything from just the, the aspect ratio all the way down to the look of it. And it just, that it'll stay static in times when you'd expect it to move. And then you have these subtle moves that'll happen and they carry so much more weight than when the camera is constantly moving around. And I feel like it was very designed and intentional when you move the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Ricky, Ricky doesn't like a lot of movement. Um, <laughs> it was, it was fun to add the zooms. We had done a short film where we had done a few zooms and we had done a few dolly moves. And I don't mm -hmm. think Ricky, I don't think, I don't know how he felt about the uh, dolly moves, but we both were like, the zooms are really great. And I, I love those like drawn out zooms. And I think they work well with the narration and also just give you a bit of like a visual, you know, they give you a minute to reflect. Um, I feel like, um, yeah. And it, it, it's, I guess the, those zooms, it just, in my mind and the visual language that I've developed over my lifetime, whenever I see those kinds of zooms, it, I automatically go to Altman. And then I put that in with mm. the, um, the narration and it's not, while it's nowhere in playing in a similar ballpark, but for some reason, I just kept thinking of the long good night because of those, um, zooms that they would have in it with that narration, um, that it had in that film. And it just had a very similar feel in that sense. And even though it's probably not even thought of as a reference <laughs> point for this film, I would assume. Yeah, definitely not a reference, but yeah, that's, that's, I, I haven't, I'm, I haven't watched Altman in, in a minute, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I love the zooms. I'm really happy with them. I wanted to shoot, we shot the whole film on a zoom lens and my, my idea behind that was that I wanted, even though it was like a 13 pound massive lens and I didn't have an AC or anything. So I was just lugging it around all day. But um, I just knew that if Ricky or I had ideas for, you know, the zoom shots that we could add them in. And, and I don't know, I find, I find some of the zoom shots too, like really funny, um, which I don't exactly know if they're supposed to be funny. I know Ricky and I definitely laugh at them from time to time, but uh, yeah. Well, there is more comedy in here than I wonder is necessarily intended at times where there's just these little happy accidents that I think, but then there's other things that feel like they are intentional, but um, something like the right wing radio voiceover, that's like talking about the fear mongering around Carrie, which just seems like a wonderful little uh, flashback there that remember a time when Carrie was scary to people that just seems like such a wonderful existence to live in at this point. Um, and then you juxtapose that with uh, the checkoff play that he has on the side table and say, like, okay, what is the, those two things being lined up together? What are you trying to say with that? Cause if that particular play, it's kind of the opposite of what that person is saying on the radio. And I'm wondering where this child lies at this point in their life when they're for me personally at that age, that's kind of when I became politically aware and started opening myself up to different ideas. And I assume that's what was going on in that scene, but it's not explicit where this child stands at that point. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, Ricky, Ricky likes to let the film and the script speak for itself. So, you know, we never talked too much about the meaning of anything. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're meant to see the environment that he was raised in and, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know if the right wing, the utter, you know, the hard right stuff made him more to the left or, or not, but yeah, I mean, I think those moments are definitely meant to be a little funny or at least ironic. I mean, the Robert E. Lee statue and everything, it's like a little <laughs> over the top, but it's, it's great. Well, it's there. Well, as somebody who was uh, born or raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, under a Confederate monument, it's, you know, that, that was part of my existence for a very long time where that was just normal to see. And, you know, I thank God I w- became aware of how abnormal that is and how abnormal that should be. But those kinds of imagery, that's absolutely something that I associate with that period of my life, because in the, you know, around like eighth grade, I was seeing that stuff every day. Every time I walked out, you'd look up and there it is. So in the same way now I live in Tucson, Arizona, I can see the Catalina Mountains. I could see a Confederate monument from multiple places in the town. So I, yeah, that that those things always hit home to me in a way that could probably not be intended. Um, I'm wondering though, in a in a film like this where it has sparse visual language, is there the times when you would want to show off a little bit things that you would want to do a little bit more talk about how you could support the meaning of a scene and you know just kind of underline that or is that something where you see your role really just as supporting the director's vision yeah um when ricky first reached out to me we he had already made three short films like Mm -hmm. on his own with the dslr um and you know he sent me a nice email and sent me the films and you know i was just i was so excited by his visual style it was you know it wasn't I mean, I'd seen that to some degree in, in foreign films, but I've never seen anyone of my generation make a movie that restrained. Um, and I and I loved it. And, you know, I, I'm kind of a DP that I really want to support the director as much as I can. And I want to adapt to however much they need me. And sometimes directors, you know, want me to throw a lot of input in. And sometimes they just want me to kind of be there and make sure, you know, everything looks good and, and, you know, they can ask my opinion and whatnot. And, you know, Ricky definitely started, when we first started working out, when we first started working together, um, it was definitely, you know, his vision and me just supporting him in any way it could. But, you know, I think I've definitely, you know, I've given more input in the last few films. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Ricky, I don't think Ricky's films would, I don't think a lot would be added with you know visual flourishes you know i think i think you know ricky also draws storyboards for almost every scene in the film Interesting. and uh he like takes the whole script and he like scales it down to like half and then draws on the side and he doesn't always stick to them but it's funny i'm always like okay i know exactly what he wants in the frame because they're just like line drawings but it'll be I'll have a good sense of what he's looking for and he draws them before we have the locations and everything so you know they change a lot Mm-hmm. But um, it's always very indicative of what is in the frame. And I feel like a lot of Ricky, you know, the compositions in the film are more about, you know, or, or sometimes they're about like what's not in the frame, you know, like he he really does like it to just focus on, you know, just the just the simplistic nature and, and not letting a lot of stuff be in the frame. And it was funny with Notes, his first film, a lot of people were obsessed with why aren't there any phones in the film, which I thought was so odd. It was like every <laughs> Q&A people would ask that. And I don't know. It, it, they didn't need, we didn't need phones in the film. I think people, 
people d- don't think about how much stuff is in frames a lot. And I love that Ricky really likes to limit it. Well, and I think that it helps to get you to focus on what's actually there instead of just having a cluttered and that's fine. There's people that they really dive into the um, production design of a film and every square inch has like a little nugget of something that you could analyze and look at. And then there's other things that are incredibly sparse and neither one of them is right. It's really just whatever it's telling that story in that way. But you're absolutely right because you think of the number of times that you shoot down hallways through doorways and all these things where there's obstructions between you and the individual. Everything is always at an arm's length in a way where you're kind of just left out. You know, you think of the dad when he comes home and all you see is his feet on the bed. And it tells so much more than if you were cutting to a close up of his face as he's, you know, going through this torment. You're just seeing it from this child's point of view. And I think it carries more weight because it's removed. Yeah, there there are definitely times, you know, every time I'm shooting a rookie film, it takes like a day or two for me to be like, okay, right, right, right. Like no foreground, like no background. It's just like, like middle ground. He did like deep focus, you know, it's it's hard to resist those urges at times, but after a day or two, I'm like, okay, right, right. We're shooting a rookie film. Cause I still, yeah, like one of one of the most interesting films to me, for some reason, I saw uh the 3D version of um Dial M for Murder at Film Forum oh, like, sure. years and yeah, years yeah. ago. And yeah. every frame of that film is so um so it, it's amazing there's like a foreground a middle ground and background in every mm-hmm. shot in that film and it looks so great in 3d and i mean clearly they were thinking about that so I, I think about that film a lot when i'm framing up stuff so yeah it's quite it's quite the opposite with ricky but uh but yeah i mean i think i, lo- I love the sparseness you know of this and then, film and, and ricky's other films no and it's um the way that you're able to move that speaks a lot to yourself going against the um, what your natural inclination would be the way your visual language, being able to translate and do somebody else's vision and to support somebody else's work. That's actually something that's pretty incredible because there's a lot of cinematographers that they have their stamp and it's their thing. Some are more chameleons where they're adaptive and you can't see their stamp necessarily right away. And I feel like that's something that you are a little bit more invisible. And I tend to appreciate all walks of film for the most part that are that i don't see it um you know if the cinematography is calling attention to itself you're detracted from the story if the performances are calling attention if it's showy you're pulling away from it and it's um kind of the big thing right now i guess is with um you know kristen stewart not getting the nomination for um just uh, for her god why am i forgetting the name of the film now uh the screen actors guilt she was everybody was thinking that she was a shoe in um for her princess diana movie i can't remember the name of it um and so because it's a subtle small performance that kind of thing and actually i really appreciate those smaller things that don't draw attention to themselves because those are to me barriers between you and connecting with story and anything you can do to eliminate a barrier really in my mind i just want to get back to black box theater i want really (laughs) small intimate performances i know that that's my own thing i don't get me wrong if there's a michael bay film every once in a while i might enjoy it it's fine it serves its thing but i know that i'll probably forgotten half of it by the time i get to the car and a film like this i'm gonna think about it the images just keep coming up every you know, a couple hours, I saw this, you know, two, three nights ago, and it's just, it's rattling around in the back of my head. And I, to me, those are the films I really love. Oh, well, thank you. That's so nice to hear. But yeah, it's, it's almost like a cliche quote at this point, but (laughs) I love the Roger Deakins quote of uh, people confuse beautiful, uh, or wait, I'm going to misquote it. People confuse beautiful cinematography with good cinematography, where I think, you know, a lot of people think, 
He does I'm both, not, though. I don't... It's really unfair with, with Deacon's Yeah, yeah. I, I know. His films are so polished. Sometimes I wish they were like a little rougher. Like I, mm-hmm. I feel like P.T. Anderson shooting his own films have this rougher quality that yeah. I really love. And it feels, I, I don't know, I connect with it more um, in a way, not to say anything bad about his DP because he's, you know, he's also an you know, incredible DP. But I, I do think too many people think every shot should be beautiful nowadays and and they're not necessarily thinking about the story or like building a real visual language for their film. Oh, absolutely. And and it's, it's, again, it's always that supporting the narrative. What is the thing that will help that? And yeah, maybe it could be the drone shot, crane shot, those things. What is that thing that you could do? But is there a way you could tell it a little bit closer? Also, that's what I always feel the pullback on in that sense. Um, But that's just me. So, and I, I, the movies I make, they generally, that I am interested in, they're much smaller and personal, I think, than something, you know, like a a Spider-Man or whatever, those huge things. And if you were doing my version of that, which would probably be Spider-Man sitting in a room with Mary Jane for two and a half hours uh, contemplating life, that'd be a boring ass movie that nobody would be interested in. And I would get fired immediately. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't belong in that world at all. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, it's I've, I'm a little fatigued on the Marvel stuff. Um, it's funny, like I saw somebody write about how, like how how you know visually rich uh, Dune is, and how they wished Marvel movies looked like that. But I just think it's not for the audience that Marvel films are designed for. Unfortunately, I don't think people would enjoy that tone, even though I surprisingly actually really enjoyed Dune. Um, but yeah. And and again, that's what it's that that's one of those things where it's a it's that's one of those ones where it didn't necessarily work for me completely as a film, but as a thing that exists, I'm just really impressed that that was made in that way and they were able to execute that and the way that it ends that it does that they let that happen and put it out into the world. That's pretty impressive. So yeah, that you could just end a movie in essentially the middle of a scene and call it a day. I guess that's how you get your part two, if I'm being completely mm-hmm. cynical. Yeah, I guess I forgot about that part. I just have, yeah, personally, I just have no criticisms of it. I I, I don't know how I would do it better. I no, God, no, no, no. That it looked great and great performances and kept my attention and yeah, but I, I know nothing about. I haven't read the book or seen the Lynch one, so I was just nope. coming to it. Ne- never seen no the Lynch one, really. No, I, I was a huge Lynch fan. Like when I was a teenager, and you know, I've seen Lost. I've seen all these movies dozens of times, but I've never seen Dune. I, well, the, that's the one that he actively hates, so I, I could see yeah. why he would want to. I just knew. Yeah, it didn't. It felt like you know. I don't know putting him in more pain by watching it or something. <laughs> or I just knew. I just knew. I knew it wouldn't be of his style. It just didn't, I don't know, didn't seem, I mean, I love sci-fi too. I just, it, it didn't, it doesn't feel right to watch a movie that the director kind of like took their name off of. Yeah. Okay. But then there's also those times where in my mindset, like a director, I can disagree with them about their work sometimes. Um, I think a lot of times we get so connected to our work and our personal involvement with it and we lose sight of the film itself. Um for me, I'm one of those people that I tend to like things that look a little bit um, less rough around the edges. Um, so I remember when Toby Hooper had the cleanup done on um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then I immediately afterwards was saying, no, I should never have done that. It took away so much from the film. And I saw that 4K transfer and I thought that looked beautiful. That, that was great. I thought it was a good looking film. But then I guess a lot of whatever people, I, I'm 
okay with that. And I tend to gravitate towards those more polished things sometimes. Um, but you know, you, you can have a director that was like, ah, I fucked up. I don't want this, but it could still be good. You know, sometimes it's impossible to divorce yourself from the critical response, um, to something and you have a negative feeling with it or those things that happened with the studio and, uh, Dune and all that, not that nightmare it was to make that film that you can't see it with impartial eyes. I would yeah. assume. No, absolutely. But, I think it's, I mean, directing a film is so, takes up so much of your time and it's all you're thinking about for months or years or however long. And I mean, like Ricky, for example, too, he'd been talking to me about the script for, for a while. So, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes you lose perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Oh, of course. And, but this is the, the type of film that it, it is. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. Uh, I had my son join me today because the last time we went into Bookman's, I picked up a box set for the 4k edition of Indiana Jones. These are his favorite films. He's loving them right now. Going back through all of these, Jakey, come here for a second. Talk to the people. Um, what is your favorite Indiana Jones movie? Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, that's great. So what do you like about that movie? I like when the curse starts. When the curse starts. So at the end of the movie, when all of the demons and stuff come out of the ark. Yeah, that's your favorite part. What else do you like about that movie? Or which other movies in the Indiana Jones series do you like as well? Um, I like the teacup. The teacup. Okay, so you, you call it the teacup. You're talking about in the Last Crusade. They have the cup of Christ, the chalice of Christ. That you like that part also. That one. Yeah, and I also like Chris Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Ooh, that, that's kind of a. Um, that's not the most popular one in the series. That that one's pretty divisive. So, what is it that you like about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Um, I like one. They the UFO comes and. I do not know why they had aliens. You don't know why a lot of people had that same comment. They're not sure why there are aliens in an Indiana Jones movie, but you really seem to like that one a lot. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell the people about Bookman's? I know about these movies and we got a second one. Now we have DVD and Blu-ray. That's great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jacob. I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. All right. And remember, Bookmans, they have your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Say bye, Jacob. Bye. You, it's so clear that this is a passion project, that you can feel intent on every frame. There's not an ounce of this film, to me, that feels cynical or that feels like it was uh, manipulative. If you're, you know, go beyond the idea that all film is manipulation, that kind of thing. But no, it doesn't feel like there's, oh, I'll get them with this moment. It just does feel like it, it's opening up somebody's diary that maybe you weren't even invited to, where it feels so personal at times. It's like, oh, am I okay to be watching this? And, and uh, <laughs> that's a yeah. pretty rare reaction that I have that to a film. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. The the initial script was 180 pages. Oh, my and then God. The shooting script, yeah. The shooting script was like 150 and I mean, it definitely could have been a two or three hour film. And I'm Ricky, Ricky edited, I think he made the first rough cut in like a week or something like that. Cause we had a deadline. Um, and there's a lot cut out of it. And I think 
probably part of, you know, everything that you just said and, and why it resonates, I think is because a lot was cut out of it or, okay. or not necessarily, not that it was bad stuff, but I think, I think Ricky's really good at cutting out fat and, and, you know, just like the frames, you know, in the movie, he just cuts out everything that's unnecessary and really focuses on, you know, what he wants to let the script and movie convey um, in a way that I've never seen any director cut so much out, but uh, yeah. Did you, there was one shot in it that I just keep thinking about over and over again. There's um, I think the actress's name, it's Geraldine Singer when she's on mm-hmm. the phone. And then there's the people that are outside mm-hmm. having this conversation and you keep bouncing back and forth without changing the focus on it, which is something that's really hard to pull off. But I feel like <laughs> I'm being guided through this entire time on what I'm supposed to be looking at. I never feel lost in this frame, even though there's these two, people that are in different two sets of people that are in different rooms and catching your eye back and forth. Yeah, that was a tricky one. Yeah. Ricky, Ricky doesn't like anything to be out of focus. Um, and he, he had mentioned that shot to me early on. So I, you know, planned to, we just had a really bright light basically shooting at, at Geraldine through some diffusion. So we could shoot it. Like, I think we were like F 14 or something. Mm -hmm. So we had everything in focus. Um, yeah, I, I know that is what a lot of people really love that frame. I, uh, I mean, I, I like it too, but, uh, yeah, it was a fun one to pull off. Yeah. I, I love, I love that kind of deep focus stuff. I, that, that kind of stuff too. I feel like nobody really does anymore like that. You know, that's like the classic citizen Kane stuff with like the, the him outside in the snow and the mm-hmm. mom, you know, and I love that stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, it's those subtle, simple things like that. And I mean, yeah, if you talk about deep focus, I mean, obviously Citizen Kane, there you go. That's kind of where that starts from at that point. And that's one of the things that we've lost in film right now. I think you don't see it nearly as much as we used to. It used to be kind of a standard of that. And it's just, everything has to be immediate right there. Or, and it's just, there's so much more that you can fill in that space. Um, And the more that you're putting in there with that, as you look, deeper into it that it resonates more and it's not that you're being told to look deeper it's you're emotionally being pulled further and further and deeper into the frame it's just something that happens with that it's kind of like you're looking down a long corridor or you're you know kind of walking down a long hallway and you just start to focus at the end of the light at the end of the tunnel and it's just that thing that pulls you forward and yeah it's subtle but beautiful yeah well, to go back to the Deacon's quote, I think people just love pretty <laughs> stuff and out of focus, yeah. mushy, soft background, you know, everyone, everyone loves that. But no, you're right. It's funny. A lot of people like just take things for granted nowadays. Like people don't think about shooting black and white or color or like deep focus or shallow focus. You know, I don't think uh, we're just so everything is so one tone. I feel like nowadays or not everything, but a lot of stuff, you know. Well, are we at a point though, where the kind of the rule book's been thrown out at this point where we have black and white you have people that uh, we're at a point now where doing four by three feels more cinematic than 235 um so if you're doing the academy ratio that that really does feel more cinematic because it's something that it's really the standard now is designed to fit widescreen tvs so if you're doing this other format it's gonna not look great on those so that does feel more theatrical now which is really strange because that was the complete inverse when I was a kid to see that shift. But, you know, you see things that are, it was, I guess when Tangerine comes out and you're shooting films on iPhones, it kind of, it's all bets are off at this point. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's something great to that too. I mean, I love Tangerine and I love uh, different aspect ratios and formats. And I mean, I don't know, hopefully people continue to uh, 
to explore that. But yeah. I don't think that that's going away. And it's, it, again, it's that it, the cliche, the thing that we keep going back to the idea that as long as it's supporting the story, you know, it, it's okay. It, it feels right. And, you know, I guess with um, Bogdanovich dying recently and just thinking about kind of last picture show and just that idea of that black and white film and those things, and that it's just, it's going to look better and talk about depth of focus that you get in a black and white film compared to color. It's just, yeah, we're, we're still not, there yet i think where you can get that close to it so it's just i personally feel like audiences are probably more open to weird ideas than we give them credit for hmm. yeah yeah i i don't know i i i yes and no i mean there's also tiktok and instagram and i don't know i feel like i don't but, know but then again then then also we're in the the time of the four hour podcast where people will go True. down these like incredible rabbit holes for hours on any subject that you could possibly think about and have really long depth of thought and focus on very specific ideas. Um, and then we'll also have TikTok, and we'll have 30 second, 10 second videos. Um, it's just, is it the right time to tell that story in that way? Sure. Some stories should absolutely be told in 10 seconds and they don't deserve uh, one second more. Then there's other ones that you couldn't scratch the surface of it in three hours. So, you know, it depends on what you're trying to tell and what you're trying to accomplish with that. And as long as to me, it's the right medium, the right, where you're just trying to convey this idea. And if that's where you start, that's your North star. I think you'll be okay. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it, it is funny how patients, I mean, people love binge television, which mm -hmm. is kind of bizarre. I'm like not a, people think I'm strange because I'll sometimes watch like four or five films in a day and log them on letterbox. And people are like, are you okay? Like, why are you watching so many movies? But I'm like, well, people watch like eight hours of or eight episodes of succession in one day and yeah. whatnot. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I, it's, that's the dis one of the many disconnects I have with people where to me, I would much rather watch three films and have three completely separate stories that get through that are completed stories and have take my gamble that way. Instead of when somebody says, well, you need to give it six episodes and then it starts to get going. That feels like bad storytelling to me. That doesn't seem yeah. like something that I, yeah, I would, if I hear that, that's, you know, that's a solid three, if not four films, depending on the length that I could have had in that same amount of time. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, Yeah. Maybe it's not a good comparison, but it's almost like drugs. It's like people just get addicted to television and they they just need, they just want more and more and more of it. You know, it's, and yeah, I mean, to need to watch six episodes is kind of crazy to get into something in my view, but whatever. And, and I like to, I like to sit with things for a little while also. And, you know, I guess it's just being 45 years old where, you know, this is a relatively new thing. And the idea of sitting down with a show kind of week after week and, not getting through it. And that's probably the biggest compliment I can pay a show. If I get access to a series at this point that it's like, no, no, I want to kind of pump the brakes, get enough to get through the review interview, whatever it is that I'm doing. But I want to actually sit in this world for a week before I revisit the next episode and the next thing and go along. You know, if you're watching a film that they were made four years apart, maybe it's not a bad idea to give some time. Um, if you're just getting into David Lynch, as you mentioned, binging all of his films over one weekend, it could be interesting because you could see the arc back and forth. But maybe if you sit with, you know, a racer head for a week or two before you jump into the straight story, 
that arc between those two could feel more evident, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to do this. I really do appreciate it. And I really love the film. I, I think this is, if this is a sign of things to come at Sundance this year, I'm thrilled because this was a, oh, what a great you. way to start things. This was the first Sundance film I got to watch this year. So um, oh, yeah, nice. this is a fun one. So I definitely enjoyed it. Good, good. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to whatever you have coming down the pike next, because I'm, I'm curious to see you adopt a, a, a different style and have the more of the <laughs> chameleon aspect of you and see um, what you could do. Cause I'm definitely impressed with what you did with this one. Thank you so much. Yeah. The, the last few films I've shot and the things coming up are, are very radically different, but yeah. Cool. Thanks. Is there just out of curiosity, is there anything that you haven't done yet that you would want to do from um, something that you would want to lens a style of film or something like that, like a Western or a musical or something that's maybe out of your comfort zone? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I do do a lot of like really small New York indie films, but I mean, I do, I do love like, like I, I do love sci-fi and I do love Westerns actually. I'm mm -hmm. like a huge spaghetti Western fan. So, you know, doing a, a two, three, five anamorphic uh, Western uh, is very appealing. And, and I mean, I love playing with light too. And uh, so that's, you know, sci-fi is interesting to me from, from that regard. Like I just got into a plethora of like eighties sci-fi Polish directors and like the lighting in some of those films is like, I, it's like decades ahead of its time. In my Anything view. you'd recommend um, offhand? Um, there was this one director and I'm going to butcher his name, but his name is, uh, his last name is Szulkin, S-Z-U-L-K-I-N. And okay. I got really into his films during um, the pandemic and the lighting is just, it's like very saturated, um, very shadowy. Um, and, and it has like, the films also have like this very kind of like light kind of goofy Polish tone. Um, but they're, they're interesting. And, and, and I'm shooting a film coming up that is ha touches on sci-fi elements. And there's another film called um, sex mission where there's these two men who are, um it's like uh the world has ended and there's only females and there's these two men and they're underground and the lighting in that movie is really interesting too um the, the polish were way ahead of their time <laughs> there you go but uh but yeah go. definitely a sci-fi and a western okay yeah i will i i went down the spaghetti western rabbit hole um over the pandemic and the um the film Django, I got that Arrow Blu-ray that was put out, the 4K of that, uh, probably like two months ago or something like that. And mm -hmm. yeah, that thing is beautiful. And his going back through and finding his films and stuff, and they're just, they're horrific and yet beautiful at the same time. And the Italians have something really interesting there with the combination of making things that are really pretty to look at, but really horrifying at the same time from that time period. And yeah, they're pretty, pretty yeah. amazing film. And I mean, even some of the like Sergio Leone films, I mean, those films, like the the dramatic uh, like nature of them or like the tension that they can hold in very simplistic shots and setups is, you know, I love that. Like, I don't know if you've seen um, Let the Corpses Tan, but that's, I mean, no. that's kind of a, you should check that out. That, that's okay. from a few years ago. It's two French directors. It's a Western. Um, it's like the visuals are, I, I love that film. It's, I mean, it's not, it's, there's a lot going on in it. But if, uh, like if it can but. be half of what that title is promising, 
That's, that's amazing. That's a great name for a film. So if it, if yeah. it's what I have in my mind right now, I, I, yeah, that would be right up my alley. That sounds pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely check that one out. Awesome. Thank you very much and best of luck. And hopefully I'll get to speak to you again sometime. Cool. Yeah. That'd be great. Thanks. All right. Take care, bro. Nice to meet you. All right. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.